0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Bold Sidebar. This is your host, Jeff Horn, talking all things New Jersey Supreme Court, recording on July 23rd, 2022. We can still talk vacancy, 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 as we have three vacancies with Justice Albin having reached the mandatory retirement age of 70 earlier in July. So we've got our three vacancies. We only have Chief Justice Rapner. Justice Solomon, Justice Patterson, Justice Pierre Louis, who have been properly vetted and put through the uh, political system to become New Jersey Supreme Court justices. And then we've got Senior Appellate Division Judge Fuentes, elevated by the chief and pitching in on some cases. However, you'll, as you'll see today, there are cases that Judge Fuentes cannot participate in, perhaps because they were in front of him below. So that's where we are uh, Rachel Weiner actor's nomination from going on a year and a half ago is, is still out there, but that would be only one of three slots. The New Jersey Globe reported that there's some rumor mail about elevating and a, a long-tenured appellate division judge. But as we sit here in the middle of the summer, sweltering summer, there's been no activity that popped above the fence line to fill these three justice spots, Supreme Court justice spots. And I'm going to jump right into another case that also deals with judicial vacancies and the impact of COVID as COVID comes back to the New Jersey Supreme Court. First, and I have four state V cases for you, picking up on the flurry of the activity at the end of the court term. These cases were all decided right at the end of the court term ending June 30, 2022. Let's get into the big case. That's State v. Marcus McElroy Davis. And this is a speedy trial case. And Chief Justice Rabner wrote a lengthy opinion dealing with the facts of the case a little bit, but mostly this is a policy case. This is how does the court deal with the Criminal Justice Reform Act, which dealt with bail and detention, while also dealing with the speedy trial rule, the a two-year rule. While the courts were shut down, limited, the state didn't want to go forward. Certainly defendants didn't want to go forward. There's been ample litigation, including arguments before the court and opinions of the court dealing with how to manage the court system during COVID. And now the opinion cites to the fact that there are 6,000 cases where defendants are detained and awaiting trial. So it's an enormous amount of work, Enormous amount of cases to get through. And what's happened, um, I'm not even into the opinion here. What's happened is, and this opinion is part of that thought process, the courts have pulled judges from other divisions and put them into criminal because 6,000 people are sitting in jail who may or may not be guilty, who may or may not wind up serving a long term. Perhaps they're, they're sitting and they may very well sit in detention longer than their actual sentence, should they be found guilty or plead guilty. So lots of resources being thrown at this issue. So briefly on the facts and the McCroy-Davis. McCroy-Davis, it is alleged, with was the driver in a drive-by shooting that resulted in one person dead. The arrest was November 11, 2019. Detention hearing, December 23, 2019. The initial indictment was for conspiracy, and a subsequent indictment in October of 2021, a superseding indictment, I should say, was for murder. So we deal with the Criminal Justice Reform Act, CJRA, that provides for A two-year cap from the order of detention to the start of the trial. The start of the trial is defined as the beginning of voir dire, opening arguments, or trial-specific motions. In other words, not substantive motions, but evidentiary motions in limine. That type of motion on the eve or on the first day of trial. That's the start of the trial. So McCroy-Davis moves before the court to be released because he's been sitting in jail awaiting trial for a long time. And certainly the court's opinion is is sympathetic to this position, understanding that the court ruled that trials cannot go forward for a period of time. There were months and months where there were no jury trials at all. Then there was the introduction of virtual trials. And literally, the state didn't want to do virtual trials and the defense didn't want to do virtual trials. Indeed, in the opinion, there's reference from an assistant prosecutor in Burlington County saying, we're not even moving ahead with indictments on first-degree crimes because we do not want to present these to virtual grand juries. So everyone had their own interests and their own incentives to act during the early days of COVID as the... Court system and the bench and bar work together to grapple with how to move cases. And did the New Jersey court system work? It worked great, all things considered. The AOC reported that up until the time that the statistics were counted for this case, which would have been sometime in June of 2022, that there had been 381,000 virtual court appearances. That is a stunning number. When you think about in March of 2020, very few things were virtual. Almost everything was in person. Sure, there were some phone conferences and there were conferences where defendants were in jail and they would appear on a video link, but it was nothing like these numbers that we're talking about. 381,000 virtual court appearances in about two years. So, yeah, the court jumped into this and, and has taken the virtual court process and run with it. So, so back to the McRoy Davis, based upon the severity of the crimes charged and the defendant's failure to appear on minor charges in the past, the uh, CJRA formula resulted in a presumption of detention, and he was unable to overcome that at a hearing. So he's sat in jail for some time awaiting his trial. And, and again, well, I always talk about what the, the court's sort of triple roles as the establishment of policy, the management of the court system, and the adjudication of the cases that come up. So this case has everything, all three. Of course, the policy is that speedy trials matter. Defendants have their right to a speedy trial. They have the right to the detention hearing and then they have a right to have the trial begin within two years. Here the defendant has sat more than two years and the court analyzed it based upon who needed delays. So if the defendant needs delays in the trial, those days don't count towards speedy trial. In other words, defendant can't ask for a German, a German, a German, postpone, 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 and then say, Well, time for my trial. You have to release me because you haven't tried the case in time. And the court cites to a number of days, counting the days in this case, where the defendant's counsel needed adjournments and so forth. So those days totaled about 82 days. Push those to the side. They do not count against the two-year cap. Of course, here we're in the midst of a pandemic and a court grappling with a way to manage hundreds of thousands of cases from the most severe criminal cases like this one to small claims and other municipal court matters, which are more of a summary nature. They all need attention. Everyone deserves due process, stay in court. And so the court really built a system on the fly. So the, the court also deals with the policy in terms of directing the trial court to be crystal clear and directing the counsel, prosecution, and defense to be crystal clear when requests are made for adjournments understanding that when the defense asks for an adjournment that's going to be excluded under the 2 year cap if the court is unable to proceed and that's what happened here there were 461 days when the court was unable to proceed with the trial so those days are not going to count towards the 2 year cap in terms of permitting the release or 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 requiring, I should say, the, the release of a defendant when when the defendant has been detained pre-trial. That's what happened here. Now the court, getting back to management of the court, is throwing enormous resources at this issue, pulling judges from other divisions and putting them into criminal so that they can get through this backlog of detained defendants, six thousand in all. And you can only imagine how many people would have been detained if the CJRA had not been put into effect a couple of years before the pandemic and gotten its sea legs. Recall many people, mostly indigent defendants, sat in jail waiting for their case to come up for trial because they couldn't meet the cash bail requirements. Further, another little policy thing or big policy thing if you were a defendant sitting in jail. The court released an enormous amount of defendants who were nonviolent offenders to avoid prisons being the uh, super spreader hub and getting a lot of people, lots and lots of people sick and or causing the death of people that were in prison waiting for charges to be addressed. Certainly we didn't want to give people the death penalty who were in for relatively minor nonviolent criminal offenses. So how do we count the days? Delays by the defense don't count against the two-year cap. Delays by the court don't count against the two-year cap. The court manages the policy here by indicating that conferences must be held at least 30 days in advance of the two-year cap running out. The prosecutor must offer a readiness statement. This can be done in open court or it can be done in writing the state must indicate that discovery is complete. No substantive motions remain to be filed. No superseding indictment is contemplated. Witnesses are generally available and that the state is ready to go. Once the state meets that criteria, then the essentially the, the two-year clock, the two-year outer limit clock stops if the court can start the trial. Great. If, if because of court resources, the court cannot start the trial, the defendant does not get a sort of automatic release from detention. In terms of the court process itself, again, conferences at least 30 days before the two-year cap expires. Trial court judges to keep in touch with their supervisory judge and to coordinate trials in each vicinage, so that people's rights to the speedy trial are honored in as great a number of cases as possible, where the cap expires because the court is not ready to try the case, conferences at monthly intervals rather than delaying keeping in touch with the state and defense for months and months, and a concerted effort by the state and defense to prioritize these cases, let everybody in the office know, cases are going to be set up, set down for trial, and they're going to have to go. So coordinate accordingly. And again, the court, who, the court rarely weighs in on matters that touch politics, but the court does remind the reader to this long and important policy opinion that the large number of judicial vacancies impacts the ability of the system to run in particular, to provide defendants with their constitutional right to a speedy trial. And that, again, is Chief Justice Ravner for a unanimous court. Next one is Justice Pierre Louis writing for the court with a dissent from Justice Solomon. This is State v. Nazir Goldsmith. We talked about this case before. This is one of our preview cases, an interesting suppression case out of Camden, an experienced narcotics officer He's on patrol in what he described as a high crime area. He sees some guys outside of a known drug house. They're together, then they go their separate ways. He sees a guy coming down the alley, him and another officer stand at the end of the alley. And the defendant, Mr. Goldsmith, amiably states to Officer Goonan, I appreciate if you guys don't pat me down. At that point, the defendant is patted down, find a handgun later. They also find uh, currency and drugs on the defendant. So in police mindset, that's sort of good policing, right? You, you, You see some guys in front of a house that's known for drug dealing, you kind of get in front of one of the defendants, make contact, and he very respectfully asks not to be patted down. Probably not the best plan for defendants. If you want to avoid getting patted down, that may not be the best way to start. However, in this case, because the defendant was in this alleyway and was blocked at one end by the police, the court found that this was a a stop and then a frisk and that there was an absence of reasonable, articulable suspicion to pat down this particular defendant, that by virtue of the physical location that the defendant was in, he really had nowhere to go. He was essentially detained by the police by virtue of the physical construct of the alleyway and where the police were. The officer testified that drug deals were made where defendants leave drugs in alleyways and and the exchange is done in the alleyway, maybe even not hand-to-hand. You leave the drugs, you leave the money, and the exchange is made like that. So the, the Supreme Court, Justice Pierre Louis, writing again for the majority with Justice Solomon in dissent, overrules the trial court that said this is a legitimate stop, and that because the officer had vast experience as a police officer in Camden, that he had recovered over fifty firearms across his career and knew the area to be a quote-unquote high-crime area, that this is just reasonable, good policing. The court makes reference to the word hunch. As soon as the court's referring to hunch, you can almost read the tea leaves that evidence might be suppressed, convictions might be overturned. This was a suppression case. There was not a trial in this case. This was purely a suppression of the weapon, currency, and uh, money found on the defendant. You know, in in a nutshell, the court found a couple of things. First of all, saying things like high crime area is not going to be sufficient grounds for a stop for a Terry stop, and that the nature of the of the physical location can also turn what would be just police officers out and about look, looking patrolling a neighborhood in this case in particular looking for drug deals that the physical construct of the location, this alleyway in particular, would create the perception by the defendant that he was not free to go, and and hence a stop. The court reinstates the trial court's suppression order, reverses the appellate division. Justice Solomon looks at it differently and suggests that the officers did not block the defendant's path forward, that that conclusion was not supported by the record. And hence, since the defendant was not seized, was not particularly, or not actually stopped or or in some other way unable to walk past the officers, that the stop should be allowed and hence the suppressed evidence should be allowed in. We talked about this one before. Appellate division preview, I believe, with Alex Shalom. So I always like when one comes up, and that is one where trial court suppressed, appellate division reversed, Supreme Court reinstates the suppression below. Next one is a unanimous decision authored by Justice Pierre-Louis. Judge Fuentes did not participate in this one, so you've got Justice Pierre-Louis, Chief Justice Rabner, Justice Albin Patterson and Sullivan. The case is Quinzel State V Quinzel Clark. and it, it takes us back to the Revis case that we did last time we did state V cases. Revis was where the defendant admitted to killing his wife and putting the body in an abandoned house. He had invoked his right to counsel equivocally during multiple, interviews, and he had come from the hospital. He had a suicide attempt. He confessed to the killing of the wife. The court suppressed his confessions. Here, we're going to run into the same exact kind of thing. The court suppresses the aspect of a long interview, a 48-minute recorded interview, where 41 minutes into the interview, the detective gets a little more aggressive with the defendant, Mr. Clark, and Mr. Clark responds, charge me. Call my attorney, Mr. Kiesler, over here. Charge me and let's go. He repeated that a total of three times, and the detective ended the interview. At trial, the entire 48-minute interview was played. The defense did not object to the aspect of the interview that included the defendant invoking his right to counsel. And in a nutshell, the court reminds the trial court and reminds the investigative officers that anytime there is an invocation of the right to counsel, that's clear, the interrogation must end. Going back to Rivas, where there's an equivocal invocation of the right to counsel, the inquiry from the detectives must pivot from questions about the events to questions clarifying whether the defendant wants to unequivocally invoke the right to counsel. And those questions ought not to automatically lead the defendant to conclude that he or she does not need counsel. So that's that one. And then one more, a favorite topic of young drivers. I recall this from my own youth, the window tinting. There was a time, I don't know if this still is the case, where young people would put tint on the windows of the car and there was sort of a test color coded strip that you would try to eyeball and determine how much tint could you put on before you run afoul of the police stopping you. In this case, the tint was on the back window. The court refers to it as the back windshield. I don't know how much wind it's shielding, but the back window was tinted. And in this case, the officers observed through the tinted window that the defendant was acting in a furtive manner, in fact, was hiding a gun inside the car, and the police stopped Search the car, got the gun, and charged the defendant. The case is State v. David L. Smith. It's a unanimous decision, and the court interprets the statute, NJSA 39, 3-74. There was an argument that perhaps the statute is unconstitutionally vague. The court found it is not unconstitutionally vague, and that the test is whether the Tint on the front windows or the front windshield. That's the that's really the only interesting part of the tinting. Whether the front windshield and front windows are tinted such that you cannot see people in there and cannot see movement in there, Uh, items or people in there. Here, the police were clear. There was one person in the car. It was Mister Smith. They were able to identify that there was one person in there and movements. Put all that to the side. The bottom line here is that only front windows and the windshield matter. And uh, if the windows are so darkly tinted that the police cannot see people or articles within the car, then they're free to make a stop under the statute. Otherwise, tinted windows are not grounds for a stop. Going back to the 1980s, the time of my driving youth. Cars didn't have tint when they came off the factory line. Now the glass is all tinted. It's completely different. And the incidence of darkly tinted windows, as far as I see out in the world, is, is much less because of the uh, factory equipment. But that, that takes me back to many an argument among the, the young drivers of my day And here, tinted windows will rarely be grounds for a stop unless the police can literally not see that there are people and articles in the car. All right, that's it for State Vs. I'll have a a few more to wrap up the 2022 session and begin the 2023 session. And I hope everyone's having a great summer. Until next time, thanks a lot from the Bold Sidebar.